Let's, let's pray, shall we? Uh, Heavenly Father, we um, yeah, just come to you now as we delve into what, uh, yeah, arguably some difficult passages, or a difficult passage, but um, into your word. And Lord, yeah, just pray that, um, well, at least what, I'm, what I have to say here is, is um, helpful. And uh, yeah, pray that, that your, your word, at least, um, uh, is clear to people and, uh, yeah, we can all, all, all grow uh, through hearing it. Amen. Um, so as, as part of my job, I, I spend a lot of time, well not a lot of time, but I, probably once, twice a week I'm in the car travelling across Gippsland to see people. Um, uh, at some stage before Christmas I was, I don't know where I was driving somewhere, but I had the radio on, listening to, to Neil Mitchell, and um, a caller rings up and says, Joy to the world, Neil. And I thought, oh, okay, good on you. Yep, that's interesting. Um, ten minutes later... Another caller rings up, joy to the world, Neil. I thought, this is odd. Anyway, the third caller, Tend to the, uh, joy to the world, Neil. I thought, oh, something's going on here. Anyway, as it turns out, Neil Mitchell, um, it, was, it was a promo thing. If, if, if you rang up and said, joy to the world, Neil, uh, that meant you could promote his, uh, you know, promote whatever community group or, or your business on the lead up to Christmas. But the, I, I guess the rub is, is that um, every now and then, Neil would slip in the, the chorus to the song. And this is where it's got hard. This is where I'm, I sort of do I sing or don't I? But it's, it's, it's joy to the world, all the boys and girls. You know, joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea. Joy to you and me. So, you know, that's, I think Jeremiah was a bullfrog. But that's what he was playing. That was his joy to the world. And, and right at the end of the program, he did actually play the hymn. But um, that, that, that got me thinking that, that how many people heard those wonderful and profound words by Isaac Watts in his hymn, but it just went right over their heads. Um, how often do we hear people sing uh, Amazing Grace? Um, but, yeah, do they really hear what they're singing? And, and so, like with, with this psalm, um, uh, was it Bob Marley or Boney M? You know, I think Boney M sang it. Anyway, that's all right. So... so you know, lots of people will know the Boney M song and hear the hear the, the upbeat disco music, um, but but do they really understand what it is they're singing? And certainly for us, that 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 last line, those last few verses, um, um, can knock us as well out of our complacency and really make us wonder what's going on here. Um, and admittedly, that's often uh, when we sort of got of a choice as to what I choose. I'll I'll pick something that. I look at myself and think, yeah, what do you do with this? So, um, you know, occasionally I bite off more than I can chew, but anyway, hopefully not this time. And, and so in looking up resources for this psalm, I was surprised, but not really, how many, um, how many other people would just drop off, particularly that last verse, but even the last few verses, they wouldn't even go there. Um, but we can't just ditch it. The whole psalm is part of a song that he's given us to sing. Um, it, it's given us to, to teach us how to pray. Um, and if we do ditch that last verse because it grates against us, then perhaps we've misunderstood the rest of the psalm and what it is um, that God's saying to us here. So, Psalm 137. So, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of your songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
So many, many psalms don't give us the context, but here it is quite clear. Um, they're in exile. And so just a quick recap for those of you um, I'm not quite sure about where all this fits. So, so in Genesis 12, the, the Bible storyline drills down to Abraham and his family line. And then through the rest of Genesis, we, we focus on, on the next few generations of, of, um, of that family. So we move through um, Isaac and Jacob, um, who was then later renamed Israel, hence, hence the, the name Israel. Um, Exodus finishes with, with Jacob and his sons, or Jacob and Israel and his sons, as a family, settled in Egypt and quite well, well, um, quite well placed and quite well renowned in Egypt. As the book of Exodus opens, this is several generations later, the, the, this, this family has grown into a people so numerous that the Egyptian rulers of the day see them as a, as a threat and so basically enslave them. And the rest of Exodus is, is um, well not the rest, but basically Exodus from then on is um, God rescuing people from that slavery. And then through the historical narrative, the, the, this, 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 this people rise to their heights under King David. Um, and with the, and those heights are with the promise that they will remain in, God's, in the promised land, in God's land, if they obey God and his ways, and that way they'll remain prosperous and will be able to stay in that land. But successive generations ignore God, they break his laws, uh, they commit many injustices and then finally, um, um, as part of God's judgement on them, the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and cart them off. And so that's where we are now with the exiles, they're in Babylon, they've been carted off out of the land. So in, in, in Psalm 137, they're back in slavery, basically. They're captives in a foreign land. And the weeping as they remember Zion. So Zion's another name for Jerusalem. Um, it seems that, that, that as the psalm opens, this might have actually been, I mean, taking aside the poetic side of it, but it might have been an actual gathering. Um, they're there for that purpose. They've, they've sat by the waters. They've got their lyres with them. And so they're there to, in principle, worship. Um, So as they're there, not only are they lamenting and mourning their situation, but in verse 3 their captors turn up and they're mocking them. They're saying, come on, sing us your songs of Zion. And so for that reason, that's why they hang up their lyres on the willow trees. Um, um, so yeah, why would they have their lyres with them if they weren't to use them? You know, it might have been symbolic, but perhaps they were actually using them. Um, and so that's why they're there. It, it was a worship service as such. So what would they have been singing? Um, so as some examples, Psalm 48. Uh, great is the Lord and greatly to, greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, north the city of the great king. Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. And Psalm 87, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So look, these are the sort of songs that they may well have been singing. 
Uh, they speak of the greatness and glory of the Lord, the glory and greatness of, of Zion, of his city, of God's love and protection for his people and how their enemies will tremble before them. So you can imagine if they're singing these songs, even, even as a lament and as a amendment of, of what has happened, um, but if they're singing these songs and their captives hear them, uh, you can see how, how they're you know, going to be mocked. Um, here's this ragtag group of captives um, singing about how great the God, how great their God is, how the whole earth will tremble before them, how their city will stand forever, um, and how the seed of, of, of David, their king, will reign forever too. And so they're mocked, and that, and that's that's not easy because because who can refute a sneer? So it's it's not an argument or a point. Um, a sneer is not easily answered. There's no there's no there's no discussion, um, there's no answer that's requested or even listened to. Um, people are simply laughing at you. And so ashamed, the, the Israelites hang up their lies and they stop singing. So that's the context of the psalm, that's, that's the setting we're in. Um, they're, they're in exile, they're captives, they're slaves, and the future does look bleak for these people. And so verse 4 how shall, we sing, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And how can we keep singing these songs? The, the closest example I could think of to this was um, World War II. Always comes back to World War II and Nazis for some reason. But um, think of the occupation of France. Um, so yep, you had some pockets of resistance. Um, but many people simply got on with life. You know, this is the new normal for us. Um, and some actively collaborated with the, with the, um, with the Germans. Um, this might have been out of survival or seeing this as well. This is the future for us, so we might as well just do what we need to do. Uh, history tells us that the Nazi reign was, in fact, relatively short-lived and that the co- collaborators were wrong. But hindsight is a wonderful thing. Uh, for the people living there at the time, they had no idea what the future was going to bring. Um, and so many simply went along with what their new overlords had told them to do. And so for the Jews in Babylon, not only are they a conquered people, but their land and city was all but destroyed. They're, they're carted off to a different country as captives by the most powerful and brutal people in the known world at the time. And so on a human level, you know, what hope was there for them? So here we are, we're slaves and exiles in a foreign land. You know, what am I to make of the future? What am I to make of my future? Uh, Christopher Ashe points out that Babylon, for them, is the future. This is where things will be. So the older people, yes, they're weeping, but for the younger people, this is where I now belong. If you were a Jew born in Babylon at that time, I'm sure your parents or your grandparents, uh, they might have talked about the old country, about the glories of Zion, the promises of God. But, but, but from what you can see, Jerusalem is all but wiped off the face of the map and it's a distant memory. And so as for God's promises, well, you know, look where we are now. But for the psalmist, he doesn't quite think like that. So verses 5 and 6, and you'll note that he moves to the first person, he moves to I. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So the psalmist here is he's admonishing himself to make sure that he remembers Jerusalem. He's telling himself, 
If I forget Jerusalem, let me never sing or play again. Because what does Jerusalem represent? So Jerusalem or or Zion, so it's the city of peace. It's, It's the city that represents God's peace with his people. It represents God's promises and his faithfulness. It represents God's sovereignty and control. So to forget Jerusalem would be to feel that there is no future there and that Babylon is not only the present, but it's the future as well. But for the psalmist, I need to make sure that Jerusalem is my highest joy and in doing so, will remember the Lord and his faithfulness. So through the Bible, God's people are constantly called to remember, to remember the Lord, remember his covenant, remember his faithfulness. And so that's what the psalm's doing. He's bringing himself to remember. And so ultimately, that's that's the choice the people are facing, Jerusalem or Babylon. So do I keep singing those old songs and remember Jerusalem? Or do I forget about that city and look towards Babylon as my future and my home? And even in in the future when the Jews are allowed to return from exile, so after after they've been there for 70 years, they're allowed to return back to Jerusalem, um, many people chose to stay behind. They they forgot. They forgot Jerusalem. Verses 7 to 9. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites of the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes the little ones and dashes them against the rock. So just two quick points about these verses. Notice that in in the psalm, this is the only time that the Lord's name is directly called upon. And when the psalmist calls upon the Lord's name, it's not to remember his people or to remember his covenants or to remember um, his... his, um, um, all those things. Sorry, gone blank for a minute, but anyway. But it's to remember his promise of judgment. And so what do we do with these verses? So we must understand some of the context. So looking at verse 7, so remember... um, Edom and Israel actually have a shared family line all the way back to to brothers Jacob and Esau. Um, But by this time in history, Esau or or, or Edom, as he's known by now, as as the the people are known, they've sided against Israel. And so um, passages like Ezekiel 25 or the book of Obadiah, um, they actually prophesy against Edom and foretell his destruction. And in verses 8 and 9, again, we need to think about the context. So Babylon was cruel and brutal in what they did to their captives. Um, impalement, disembowelment, burnt, skinned alive, cut off arms, noses, ears. The psalmist is someone who's seen the death and destruction of his people and his city. Um, he's probably may well have seen the death of his own children and loved one and maybe even some of those were, were themselves dashed against rocks by the Babylonians. And so the psalmist sings about the person who destroys Babylon and repays to them what, what, ha, what has been done to them as blessed is the one who performs his payback. Um, there, was a, there was a Don Carson quote I was desperately trying to find but I couldn't find it. So at the risk of misrepresenting what he said, he goes. Don Carson, 
argues that in Western Christianised cultures, um, the deliberate killing of another person meant the death penalty. So Carson, if I, if I remember him correctly, um, said that in our progressive culture, in doing away with the death penalty, we've actually minimised the, the worth of the victim and minimised the severity of the crime. He points out that this is not about forgetting love or mercy or forgiveness and it's not about revenge but that some crimes are so heinous such as the deliberate killing of an image bearer of God that the state could decide that your life was now forfeit. So we all see evil in the world. We all want justice. But the problem is in our modern culture we tend to water down the evil and therefore we water down the justice that, that, that we want to see meted out. Um, just, just as an aside, have you noticed that we, we often, well not often, but we do, we kill the unborn. There's now legislation in to kill off the sick and the elderly. Um, but if you get someone who goes and murders a bunch of people and buries them in a forest somewhere, um, we actually protect their lives. Yes, they're incarcerated, but they're giving housing and fooding and medical care um, to such an extent that, that a, a lot of people in the community can't afford those things. Um, back in the days when I went out to Fulham uh, with, the, with, the, with the others, um, there was one older bloke who was actually worried about getting released because on the outside, suddenly he had to worry about rent and bills and um, to get dentures, he'd be on a five-year waiting list. But in prison, he had none of those worries, none of those concerns. So I guess the point I'm trying to make out of that is the death penalty that, that most of us do see as barbaric. And while that's certainly um, our modern view, is it, is it really right? Is it biblical? So when we come to this idea of bashing children against the rocks, what do we do with that? Um, Christopher Rashing, talking about these verses, actually says that they're good news, um, as horrible as they sound to us. Um, so why is it here? Again, context is important. In the ancient world, if you went to, if you went to war against another city or another state, um, you wanted to make sure that no one, none of those conquered people, could come back and attack you later on. So you went and killed those who were an immediate threat, or those who could become a future threat. So you wiped out all the men of fighting age. You wiped out all those who could grow up to be fighters and you also wiped out the women who could bring in future fighters. If this was done successfully, the nation was pretty much eradicated and they could not come back later and attack you. To our modern sensibilities, that's pretty horrific. But in ancient warfare, that was basically the way of the world. That's what happened. So this idea of dashing children against rocks, in, in, it may well be literal, but it's also a figurative expression as well. It looks to a time when this nation of Babylon would be utterly wiped out, when it could no longer be a threat to the world. It looks to the promise of Babylon having no future, because unless these things happen, Babylon may come back and continue to commit these atrocities. Jeremiah in chapter 51, he, he actually prophesies, amongst other places, but he prophesies the destruction of Babylon. So Jeremiah 51, 60 to 64. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come along Babylon. All these words are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, 
When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie it to a stone, cast it in the midst of of the Euphrates and say, Thus shall sink Babylon to rise no more. Because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, they shall become exhausted. Effectively, Jeremiah here is saying the same words that our psalmist is saying. It's just that Jeremiah's words are a bit more palatable to us. But the point is the same. Babylon has no future. That's why the psalmist back in verses 5 and 6 says that he needs to remember Jerusalem. He needs to keep singing those old songs as opposed to those who are making Babylon their home the psalmist wants to remember that Babylon is not his home, that Babylon has no future. And so two and a half thousand years later, um, we're in the same boat. 1 Peter, he refers to us, in in Peter and 1 Peter, refers to us as elect exiles, as sojourners and exiles. The idea being that as Christians, we are living in a foreign land. We are in a place that's not our home. And just like the Israelites in Babylon, we have the temptation to see this as our home, to think that this is where we belong and this is our future. So in Psalm 137, Babylon is literal as an actual city and place and time. But in the New Testament in Revelation, as Jared read to us at the start, Babylon is figurative, it's symbolic, but the choices are the same. The book of Babylon uses sorry the book of Revelation uses Babylon as, as an image of the world in which we now live. And it certainly seems like a good place. Um, in Revelation 18:12 to 13, we learn that might merchants ply their trade from all over the world they're selling cargoes of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots and slaves, that is human souls. It's a shopper's paradise. There's basically anything you'd want there. Um, It's a rich place. There's lots going on. And um, a few verses later in in, in, um, verse 22, it makes a note that Babylon is full of gifted musicians and craftsmen. So I guess in our terms, think of entertainment and technology. It's a great and wonderful city. And why wouldn't you want to live there? It has all your wants and needs. So why would you look to anywhere else when you could be so comfortable and happy there? And, and, and that's, that's our problem, isn't it? Just like many of the Jews ex- exiled in actual Babylon, we can get all too comfortable here as well. We have our friends and our families and our jobs and our and our hobbies and our homes and our gardens. We have our shopping and our entertainment. We have our hopes and dreams for the future and many other things that keep us grounded in the here and now. Now, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There are good things that are to be enjoyed. They're given to us by God. But we get too attached to them. And it's far too easy to be settled and comfortable here to see that this is our home and this is our future. Um, just to be a bit controversial here, 
Um, I read a challenging article that discussed the response of many Christians and churches to COVID. Um, in, in the past, often at the expense of their own lives, if there was a plague, the Christians would go in and, and, and minister to the sick, look after the sick. This article argued that with COVID, we ignored the biblical injunctions to fear not and to trust in God in a dangerous world. And how we focus more on worry about how the people around us will perceive us and how our concern for temporal life overtook our concern for eternal life. It was a long and detailed article and I can't do it justice here and I didn't agree with everything that the, 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 the author was saying. But I, th- I still thought he made an interesting and perhaps valid point that as a church, along with the rest of society, through fear and, co- and coercion and intimidation, we've been told and forced to do things that we would ordinarily strongly resist. No gathering, no singing, no visiting, and rightly or wrongly, we, we all went along with it. Um, I know many of you here will disagree that... that there was anything wrong with those things happening but it's worth I think considering that are we too focused on temporal life and instead of internal life are we too focused on Babylon and not the heavenly Jerusalem so back to our text so on on, on the one hand um, in Babylon Revelation is a glorious city but she's also pictured as a seductive woman As Proverbs 5 warns us, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. This image, obviously from the the perspective of us blokes, um, is that she's attractive and seductive and seeks us to draw us into her clutches and her ways. But in Revelation uh, 17, verses 5 and 6, we read that Babylon, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations... That's far from a complimentary description um, of this world we live in. Despite all the glory and attractiveness and excitement and comfort and ease, this is the true picture of Babylon. So Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She actively seeks out the followers of Christ and kills them, persecutes them. And so, in Revelation 18, 2 and 3, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the the, the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, don't forget this image of sexual immorality. Um, Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah in particular use rather confronting language of the people whoring after false gods. For God's people, our relationship with him is likened to that of a marriage where the bride, sorry, where we are the bride and he is the groom and he provides everything for us and, and he expects us to be faithful to him as well. The problem is that far too often the, the, the bride abandons the groom as he promises and, in, again, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, in that language, she prostitutes herself out to whoever she meets. It's, it's not a pretty image. And so in Revelation, it's the nations that have fallen for her, for Babylon. 
And so there is the call to us in verse in Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. To come out of her is to attach ourselves to Christ, to remember him, to be attracted to his glory and wonder, and to see being with him as our true home. Just as ancient Babylon fell, so too will this Babylon, as as Jared read out to us. And like the Jews in that ancient city, we we need to make sure that we don't get too attached to to the seductiveness of her and that we remain faithful to our bridegroom, to Christ. And as with ancient Babylon, God's judgment is coming. And so, yet we need to come out of it. And just like the psalmist, there is a place for a desire for judgment. So back in Revelation 6, chapters 9 to 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood and those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Like the last verse of Psalm 137, this is a call for justice. And indeed, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? How long, O Lord, is a common refrain in the Bible. How long, O Lord, will you put up with the injustice in this world? But the the main issue is that justice is all in God's timing. It's his prerogative. We are to pray for our enemies. And we are to wait patiently on God and his timing and his justice. But for us, that patience means that for now, we need to persevere through the injustices of living this life in exile. Those difficult verses in Psalm 137 tell us that blessed is he um, who puts a final end to Babylon because until this happens, Babylon and all that she stands for will keep coming back. And Revelation 18 promises us that finally Babylon will be no more. So as confronting and grating as these words in Psalm 137 can be to us, they are indeed words that we can pray. Babylon, for all its seeming wonder, is, a, is in reality a place of cruelty and injustice. But Babylon has no future. The only future is with Jesus. And as his people, we need to make sure that we're moving away from Babylon. And that's why we need to heed that call to come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. And so, just like the psalmist, we are exiles in a foreign land. Just like the psalmist, we need to remember that Babylon is not our home. Just like the psalmist, we long for the day when true justice will come and evil will be vanquished once and for all, never to return. And just like the psalmist, we need to remember that Jerusalem, or for us on this side of the cross, cross, we need to remember Christ and that he is our home. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we do recognise that we are fallible and finite beings and, and, and there are times when we do struggle with your, with your eternal and perfect word. 
to help us to see and understand that even passages like this one um, are indeed good news for us and that we can sing and pray these words. And so with, with that thought, Lord, help us to grasp firmly onto your Son and not be seduced by the world around us. Help us to remember that this world is not our home, but that it is fleeting and has no future for us. Help us to cling to Christ and to remember that um, he and he alone is our hope and our future. Amen.